His legend has begun. Carlos Alcaraz wins his first ever Wimbledon championship as he defeats all-time great Novak Djokovic in five sets. Has the present and the future of men's tennis arrived? A lot of intriguing series coming out of the break in baseball as we're just two weeks away from the trade deadline. NFL training camps open up next week as Tyreek Hill has his mindset on 2,000 yards. An extension for Jets defensive tackle Quinnen Williams and Giants running back Saquon Barkley's deadline to sign on the dotted line today could jeopardize his 2023 season. And Messi Mania is about to invade Miami. The sweltering heat isn't going to stop me from ramping up the temperatures even higher as I get to recap the latest in sports. It's all coming up. But first, this message. Jay Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the Jay Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there. Whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. Especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, alright? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. More than halfway through the month of July. Ah, Can we just slow down a little bit, Summer? Can we just pump the brakes, please? But more importantly, when it comes to the toy department that we love to talk about in sports, are we starting to creep out of that sports dead zone? Are we starting to come out of its shell? Well, depending on who you talk to, it's either never a dull moment or it's please get us a football season. But either way, I'm always going to come correct, direct, and in full effect on all that's going on in sports. And you've come to the right place to listen to it all as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And two weeks ago today, we talked about Wimbledon coming into this tournament, how in the previous tournament, the French Open, where we had that clash of the Titans between the young upstart and one Carlos Alcaraz, and of course the old, wily, all-time great veteran Novak Djokovic. Now granted, that was in a semifinal, and as we saw there, it was all Djokovic after the second set to where Alcaraz started to cramp up, and he was a bundle of nerves going into that match to where Novak just took over. One in four sets and, of course, won the French Open to win his 23rd all-time men's single Grand Slam tournament. And as we discussed, we were hoping that the trajectory of this tournament was going to be in a final with the aforementioned greats to have 
Djokovic go for a 24th and would tie Margaret Court all-time as far as Grand Slam wins, whether men or women's. And then for Alcaraz to have him get his first Wimbledon title to really start to take off and even make amends for what happened there last month. Well, the one thing that I will say is that when you have a young player like Alcaraz and all of the potential, all of the talent, all of the makings of what is quite possibly not just the future of men's tennis, but actually the present. And what you saw there yesterday was a display of a kid that's probably going to dominate the sport for the next, you would think, decade and a half, at least, barring any major injuries. And even after that first set where he lost and you kind of thought to yourself, are the nerves going to be so ratcheted up that he's not going to be able to get out of his own skin and kind of just let the play come to him? Because you can understand as a young kid to want to not only play well, but also go up against the likes of arguably the greatest men's player in the history of the sport. And in that second set, which was critical because there was no way he could go down 0-2 and then have to fight all the way back to win three straight sets against that guy, that machine that everybody knows. Once he smells blood in the water, he's going to attack. And as it was, you got to that tiebreak set in the second set. And for Alcaraz to win that 8-6 took 27 minutes, and from that point on, you knew that he had gotten maybe a little bit of his confidence, even a little bit of his swag, and what we saw there in that third set was just complete dominance on his part. And it looked like he was slowly but surely starting to take over, and you maybe even thought that after that 6-1 third set that, wait a minute, can he dispose Novak Djokovic here in four sets? But Djokovic, the warrior, the competitor that he is, And for him to then bounce back in that fourth set to push it now to a fifth set. And everybody, especially with the tennis community and even the diehard sports fan, right then and there, you knew that you were going to be riveted to see how this final set was going to unfold. And as it was, Djokovic won that first game to make it 1-0. And then for Alcaraz to then win the next three, I thought was crucial and even critical for him to win Overall, because let's say if they would have gone back and forth to where even if Alcaraz took a 2-1 lead there in that fifth set, and let's say if Djokovic were to get the equalizer 2-2 and you go back and forth, I think that would have added a lot more pressure on Alcaraz and it would have been right in Djokovic's wheelhouse for him to then take over, to find a mistake, to maybe see if Alcaraz is going to press there a little bit. But by him winning that fourth game to make it 3-1, I thought at that point, I said, this is where Alcaraz is going to win the match. And as it was, you did see the next game go to Djokovic, and then it went 4-2, 4-3, 5-3, 5-4. And then, of course, in that final game for Alcaraz to then get his serve and volley, who was stupendous throughout, whether it was drop shots, whether it was just the power game that he has, he has the complete tool set. And what we see there in Djokovic throughout all the years and watching him perform, and Djokovic, as we always talk about, he's a machine. The guy is a robot for the most part where, all right, his serve may not be all time, but we know that his game is power, is mechanical, but at the same time, it's even textbook. And sometimes when you have a guy like Alcaraz, who has all the tools, sometimes it can be raw, Not necessarily he's raw, but when you have a player who 
has anything that you could ever imagine. If you were to go into a lab and build a tennis player, from what we've seen here so far, yes, a lot of people may look at Novak Djokovic. Some people may even look at Roger Federer because he played with such finesse. He had such a great strong volley as well as a great serve. And now that we're seeing the next coming, and if you did watch that match yesterday, despite the fact that Djokovic, who has earned his greatness, and as we've talked about before, and I said this after the French Open, he is by far the best men's player of all time. And yes, we could base it on the Grand Slam victories that he has, but as I mentioned, the guy is just the Terminator. And yesterday you saw Alcaraz defeat the Terminator. And what we saw there in that final set and just the shots that he's able to make, like I mentioned, he had a couple of those drop shots that had no answer for Novak to return. Same for those over-the-head volleys where as Djokovic is trying to go back, there's no way that he could even come close to giving it a swat or a desperation volley to get it back to the other side of the net. Or just the cross-court power that he has where Djokovic looked like he has Alcaraz in a corner and then what happens the athleticism and the talent shines to where he volleys back across his body to the other side of the court just inside the white line which has Novak Djokovic shaking his head this is what I mean about a guy that when you watch that performance there yesterday not only just from the talent but even from the mental and grit standpoint because if he would have lost that second set That would have been curtains for Alcaraz. And then there would have been a lot of questions for him heading into the U.S. Open, who, by the way, will be the defending champ. But a lot of questions on whether or not he has the makeup to beat a guy like Djokovic, who, as we said time after time after time, with his stature in the sport amongst the all-time greats, if not the all-time great, would he be able to get over that hurdle? And mind you, The previous month there at Roland Garros, he was unable to get to a fifth set and unable to match wit, talent, gumption, etc. to try to upend Djokovic there at the French Open. And I'm sure that was something that he may have even sat on over the past three or four weeks to where he knew that this was going to be the match of his life. And by him winning, as he said there in the post-match interview, It's a dream come true to win, beating Novak, knowing that he is the guy, even at 36 years of age, which is unbelievable when you think about it. And what made this even more interesting to me is that the path to get here for both Djokovic and Alcaraz, especially in the semifinal, was, let's call as we see it, it was a cakewalk. Daniel Medvedev was no match for Alcaraz there as Alcaraz won in straight sets. And the same for... Djokovic, who beat Yannick Sinner and again broke into a little bit of a sweat early on in that match, but also won in straight sets. So you didn't have one guy going into this final playing a five and a half hour marathon, five sets, tiebreakers left and right, and where the one guy had a cool, easy three or maybe even four set match to where the advantage was going to be the guy who had more rest and didn't have to go through the rigors of an extended or a long match in their semifinal. And for Alcaraz, like I mentioned, to me, he's the current. I know that Djokovic is still going to be there and he's going to be waiting in the wings at Flushing Meadow there at the end of August into September. And we would think that, who knows, maybe we'll have a part two when it comes to Grand Slam men's finals. 
But that is for then and this is for now. Alcaraz is your guy. There isn't anybody else, I think, on the circuit right now that could even compete. Now, does that mean he's unbeatable? Does that mean that he's unstoppable to where he's just going to plow through the competition here day in, day out, Grand Slam in, Grand Slam out? Absolutely not. But when we take a look, other than Djokovic, whether it's, as I mentioned, Daniel Medvedev, Yannick Sinner, Andre Rublev, Alexander Zverev, Taylor Fritz, we could go through all the guys. Holger Rune, who Alcaraz beat during the early part of last week to get to the semifinal and obviously to win the whole thing. All these guys who are very good tennis players. But there's good and there's great. And right now, you have to say that Alcaraz is a great player. He's ranked number one for a reason. I understand it was semi-controversial to the point where Alcaraz did lose to Djokovic, as I mentioned, of course, in the previous Grand Slam major. And you could have argued that Djokovic should have been number one where Alcaraz is second. But now, there is no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. Alcaraz is your guy. Alcaraz is not just the next four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, fifteen years, but he is right now. And you saw that there in full display out of the Old England Club yesterday morning into the afternoon here, especially if you're stateside. And there isn't much more you could say. As far as Djokovic, he was all class in his post-game match, even was emotional when he was talking about his kids and his family. And Djokovic, I've come to warm up to him over the last few years. I've always been a Rafael Nadal guy. I do like Federer, but there was something about Nadal, the guy that always played from hunger, always played as if that was going to be his last game, his last point, last match, set, etc. But for Djokovic, I did respect what he's done up until about a couple of years ago, but how could you not respect this guy for everything that he's done on a tennis court and all that he's done for the sport? I get it that he's not the most warm and fuzzy guy, although if you watched the post-match yesterday, you would think differently. But for Djokovic, when you see greatness, and that's what it's all about, people, whether you like him, love him, can't stand him, despise him, you have to respect him. And for what he was able to do there yesterday, he knew that that opponent was young, even hungry, was looking forward to redeem what took place there in the previous month at that semifinal in Roland Garros. And now here he is, the Wimbledon champ. And let's see if Alcaraz is going to carry this into the latter part of the summer where he's going to be defending his title from last year at the U.S. Open And let's see if we can have another rematch, which would be juicy to say the least. And especially on a hard court where we know Novak loves to play on that type of surface. As evidenced by the Grand Slams that he's won there in the past. I believe he's won four U.S. Opens. So we shall see the third majors in the books. And I also have to give credit on the women's side too. Cannot forget, and I'd be remiss to not mention Marketa Vondrasova, who beat Anj Jabor and... I don't want to make it all about Jabor, but she's gotten to these Grand Slam finals here over the last couple of years, and she has always been the bridesmaid and never the bride. She loses in straight sets, 6-4, 6-4. Vondrasova, who was unseated and on nobody's radar, and here she is, similar to golf with Wyndham Clark when he won the U.S. Open last month, a guy that nobody had any thoughts that would be close to the top of the leaderboard and then, of course, wins. And for Vondrasova, it's the same thing. Just different sport. 
And for her to win Wimbledon, this is a thrill of a lifetime. Who knows if this is going to put any gas in her tank or if she's going to be the type of player that's going to maybe even make some hay as we get to the latter part of the summer into the final Grand Slam of the year. Remember, we saw Emma Raducanu won the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. And not to say that she was an up-and-coming face of tennis, but at 18 years of age, a lot of people thought, wow, could Raducanu maybe won a couple more majors, and since then, her career's gone backwards. And it's not to say that Vondrasova, that's going to be the same fate for her, but give it up. Congratulations to her on winning Wimbledon. As we all know, that is the Super Bowl, the highlight of the tennis season. If she has any momentum that's going to carry her throughout July and into August and maybe into Queens, then let's see where that will break down for her. But plenty of time between now and then. As we put a lid on Wimbledon there in a thrilling men's final and maybe not so thrilling women's, but now that we can put that to rest and move on to other things. And now as I lace up my cleats, put on my batting gloves, get the batting, go into the batter's box to get into some baseball, and now that we're out of the break. And you had a lot of interesting series here this weekend, which I didn't highlight on Thursday, but for baseball to be back in the mix, and now we're a little over two weeks away from the trade deadline, you got to wonder whether or not certain teams are going to start to pair or even purge for that matter a lot of their talent because you're going to hear a lot of rumblings, a lot of rumors as we now get into the early part of this week and let the rumor mill begin. And I know a lot was talked about last night on the ESPN broadcast of Sunday Night Baseball with Shohei Otani and how he could possibly be moved before the deadline. And that's where I'm going to start before I even get to the series because... We know Otani's exploits. We know that he could have an MVP in a Cy Young Award year, although he left with another blister there on Friday. He did say he was going to make his next scheduled start. He's going to play against the Yankees, who come to town now Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, or is it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? I believe they start tonight. I'll check that in a minute. But we get it. The broadcasters... The pundits, everybody's going to now look at the groundswell of should you trade Shohei Otani knowing that he's going to become a free agent at the end of the year or because you're not going to get anything back or do you just play out the rest of the string? The Angels are going nowhere based on their collapse here over the last month or so and with Trout out and we know Anthony Rendon cannot stay healthy, there are some big questions that I'm sure are being floated throughout the offices of Angel Stadium, Anaheim Stadium, whatever that ballpark is, where the owner, Artie Moreno, I'm sure he's been having plenty of sleepless nights here over the last month or so to have to decide whether or not he's going to pull the trigger on what would be a blockbuster in-season trade to get as much as he possibly can. And he should ask for the sun, moon, stars, galaxy, universe, Etc. Because anything less of maybe a couple of everyday players who are young and up and coming and pretty much taking the minor league system of whomever that team may be that's going to want to trade for Otani, just leave their coverage bare, there's no way that I would trade him. And I don't think he's going to get traded between now and then. And to think that this is actually going to be a discussion... As of right this second, only because, like I mentioned, the deadline is a couple of weeks away. But I don't think Otani's going to go anywhere. Now, unless Otani comes out publicly to say, I want to play for a winner or I want to stay in Anaheim. Now, you know he's probably going to be 
tight-lipped and close to the vest. I'm sure he's going to be asked a thousand times between now and then. He's probably going to even refuse a lot of these interviews, but that is going to be the big story here over the course of the next couple of weeks. And even though I'm not going to be one every five seconds, oh my God, is Otani going to get traded? Oh, this team is now in the forefront. I read that the Yankees are even interested in trying to secure a trade to maybe even bring Otani to the Bronx. But if you're the Yankees, why do that? Or even any team for baseball. Because what are you going to do? You're going to give up a ton of picks. You're going to give up players, etc. And that doesn't even guarantee you signing him at the end of the year. I would think that, and rightfully so, and I'm not a GM, but you don't have to be a GM in order to dissect this whole scenario. But if you're a team that's going to trade for Shohei Otani, before you even give up the house, the cars, the motocross bikes, the swimming pool, etc., you know that you're going to have to talk to his agent to say, what is it going to take to get him to sign on the dotted line? Because we need to sign him. The, obviously, this isn't a trade where it's a rental and then he's going to say bye-bye come October 31st. Cannot happen. But I'm not going to be one every five seconds to check Twitter or to check the news cycle to see who's going to be the hot team, who's the latest team that's got themselves into the mix. I'm not that guy. Of course, I'm going to pay attention. Of course, I'm going to monitor and take the temperature of what's going on out there, but not to the point where it's all consuming that, oh my God, Otani, Otani, Otani. I get it that he is probably the biggest name in sports right now. Other than Lionel Messi, and I'll get to him later on, but for the Angels, they have a quandary and a half, and to me, thank God I'm not the GM or the owner of that team. And let's call it as we see it. If I was the owner, I'd be like, Shohei, we're going to start with a five. We're not going to go as high as six, and that's $100 million. Take it or leave it. And if he doesn't take it, at least you put forth the effort to want to resign him and not put any offer on the table. Because if he doesn't do that, Moreno might as well sell the team as he originally thought last year. Jump ship, get your $2.5 billion or however much the team is worth and go on your merry way. Now, as far as these series, you got to wonder what's going on in Baltimore there because the Orioles are as hot as a pistol. They've won eight straight. They swept the Miami Marlins who came to town this weekend and the Orioles are nipping at the Tampa Bay Rays heels. For the Orioles to now, as I talked about there on Thursday, you have to wonder whether or not they're going to make a play for a pitcher. And I understand they're not going to break the bank. They're probably not going to give up any of their prized prospects understood but as much as they've been able to hit as much as they've been able to keep winning in fact remember we talked about this on Thursday they have four games in hand on the Tampa Bay Rays and currently they have one less loss but because the Rays have played more games they have a percentage point lead in first place in the AL East but because they've won eight in a row and because they are as hot as can be You have to wonder whether or not they're going to push the button to bring in a big-time pitcher. We know they have a good bullpen. Their lineup is fine. No need to touch that. But does that mean they're going to be in the running for a Marcus Stroman? Does that mean, dare I say, a Max Scherzer? Now, they're not going to pay $43 million or what's left. And I'm sure even if they tried to get Max Scherzer, and I believe Scherzer has a no trade, but who knows? Maybe he'd go to the AL East, considering that the Orioles could be this close to winning it all. 
But Steve Cohen's going to have to eat a bulk of that in order for the Orioles to procure his services. But even with that being said, who knows? Maybe they could get a decent prospect if that would be the case. Now, I'm just conjecture people, just throwing out ideas. This isn't anything that I've read or seen. But one more time, you do have to wonder whether or not the Orioles are going to push their chips in the middle of the table because they look like a team that's going to be a serious contender here in the AL East and maybe even the entire league overall. So that's one we have to look out for. The other team that's actually played pretty well in that division, and they've been up and down, left and right, are the Toronto Blue Jays. They just swept the Diamondbacks, who have been in a free fall themselves, as the Blue Jays try to even eat closer. Now they are six in the loss behind the Baltimore Orioles, but at the same time, we've seen this Blue Jay team be hot at certain times and then go ice cold. So they've been very inconsistent. But when you look at the weekend that they beat up the Diamondbacks and maybe the Diamondbacks are starting to come back to earth here considering they had a great first half and a lot of success early on but they're starting to spring some leaks and you have to wonder whether or not they're going to start plugging them because the Dodgers have played well beating the Mets 2 out of 3 over the weekend and now they go to Baltimore which is going to be a very interesting series I was going to get to that in a second but for Toronto let's see if they can keep it up and try to get themselves in a position to maybe secure one of those wild card spots. And then the East also has the Red Sox and Yankees tied at the bottom. To show how competitive that division is, the Yankees are currently for the first time since I believe August 23rd, 1992 that they've been in last place. Now granted they're tied, they're not alone in the basement of the AL East. And after losing two out of three to Colorado over the weekend, who are the worst team in the National League, they could bring in Sean Casey, the new hitting coach, as we talked about there last week when they fired the old one, Dylan Lawson. They could maybe even look to get rid of their pitching coach because we understand Coors Field. And even though Garrett Cole pitched well yesterday, six innings, one run, two hit, 11 strikeout ball. But even with the one run that he gave up in six innings, the Yankees lose 8-7 in extras. So their bullpen imploded, and who knows if the bullpen is taking too much of an all-star break, or maybe they're still on vacation when it comes to them not performing well, because they couldn't even beat the Rockies in the series over the weekend, and they go to Anaheim, like I mentioned earlier. So the Yankees certainly have a lot of questions, and maybe the pitching coach could be out on the rail. So you have that going on in the AL East. The NL and AL Central... I'll get to the more of the NL Central in a minute. I want to stick to the American League, but the AL Central, the Twins had a very good weekend as they flip-flop with the Guardians as far as what team that's going to be the sacrificial lamb you would think to the sixth seed of all teams when it comes to October as they got themselves back on the beam and let's see if they could have any momentum to put themselves together for a decent second half to win a division and then let's see what happens there come October. And then you had the Rangers who came off of a good weekend themselves. The Astros also had a up and down weekend. They did win two out of three in Anaheim as they were the highlight game there. We talked about there with uh, ESPN the Sunday night. But for Texas to sweep the Guardians over the weekend and put themselves just at least a little bit ahead in the AL West. They do have a three game lead over the Houston Astros and Seattle is behind them as they finally got to the 500 mark, the Mariners that is, as they look to see whether or not that they could try to get themselves back on the mix as far as the wild card picture goes. And then in the NL, the Braves lost 2 out of 3 to the White Sox over the weekend, shocker there, but the 
Phillies were able to sweep the Padres and the Padres and the Mets, boy, talk about two peas in a pod. The high payrolls, teams that made it to the playoffs last year. Obviously, the Padres beating the Mets in the wild card round and then the Phillies beating the Padres. So, a little rematch there of the NLCS last year and just like what we saw in the NLCS where the Phillies swept the Padres in their ballpark, they did the same here in the regular season and the Padres are scuffling, wondering whether or not that they're going to get back on the mix and back on the beam to see if they could have any push to see if they can make it into the NL wildcard race. And we talked about the Diamondbacks now loses the four in a row after getting swept in Toronto. And now they've actually fallen behind the San Francisco Giants who have been a little bit uh, on the plus side or at least playing with fire. The Giants swept the Pirates over the weekend and now they will go to Cincinnati to play the Reds. And the Reds, I'll get to them in a second, where they face the Brewers over the weekend. But for the NL West... You got to wonder, are the Diamondbacks, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, are they going to get themselves on track and try to build off of that success there in the first half of the season? Or really the first three and a half months, because here over the last two to three weeks, they have not played well. Remember, they got swept by the Mets in their ballpark. What was it, two weeks ago? So you have to wonder what's going to happen with them. The Giants, they're going to be middling around. They're just a game and a half, two in the loss behind the Dodgers who, as we talked about before, winning two out of three before going to Baltimore. And then the Padres, they are, if they're not out to sea with the Mets, they are right behind the Mets when it comes to that. So let's see what the Padres are going to do to get their act together because they may end up being sellers just like the Mets, but I think the Mets have more pieces to give away than I think, personally, the Padres do. And then the Brewers had a very good weekend sweeping the Reds in Cincinnati, and they also have another series in Milwaukee at the end of the month. So this is going to be a telling time for a Red team that, as we talked about on Thursday, are they going to be able to maybe make a trade or two to get themselves in position to push for not only a division, but maybe even a wild card spot? And what we saw there over the weekend, the Brewers pitched well. They did get some timely hitting, but the Reds were no answer for the Brew Crew as they swept Cincinnati out of the Great American Ballpark. And you have to wonder whether or not they're going to be able to pick up the pieces with the Giants coming in. And as I just mentioned, their winners are five in a row. So this could be a telling time for the Cincinnati Reds as they try to keep themselves afloat. Not only in the division, there are two back as we currently speak. But one more time, I believe the weekend after this is when the... Reds go to Milwaukee, which could be a season-defining series, depending on how close or how far back they are in the division. So that's something to keep in mind. And that's baseball in a whole overall. As far as the schedule this week, let's see how the Orioles are going to fare against the Dodgers, which they have brought up Grayson Rodriguez, the young prize pitching prospect who had to get sent down earlier this year. Let's see if he was able to be fixed and gets thrown right into the fire to play a Dodger team that right now, as we mentioned, in first place and looks like they may start to take off here as they played well here over the last couple of weeks right before the break and, of course, right after. We talked about Giants-Reds. That's one to pay attention to. In fact, now that I think about it, with Miami, Luis Arias, who has been flip-flopping with his average, he had four hits on Saturday to bring his average, I believe, up to about 384, but then took an 0 for yesterday. He was now back down to 380. Once it gets below 380 people, that's it. There's going to be no talk about flirting with 400 as it is. I don't think he's going to get to that. When you're 20 points behind, you're going to have to go on such a tear 
to just get to 400. And as he got the four hits the other night, that got him up to 384. Or maybe it was 386. But even still, yesterday I believe he went over five, so it dropped him down to 380. That is going to be a tall order. Now, to think, even if he ends up hitting when it's all said and done 360, when was the last time a hitter batted 360? You probably have to go back to either Tony Gwynn. I know the one year John Olerud in 93, didn't he bat somewhere in the 350s? Well, you got to go back maybe George Brett, 390. He batted in 1980 to have a performance to where a player throughout a whole season, and that's not counting Tony Gwynn's 394 during the strike year in 94, but for Arias, who has been phenomenal throughout the whole year, flirting with the possibility of 400, but it's going to be a lot. He's going to have to really string off a lot of three-hit games, maybe even a couple of four-hit games to even get close to 400. And then as we all know, you still got what? 70 games, maybe 68, 69 more games left to go. So it's going to be a lot for him to try to get to that point. But hey, just to discuss it here on July 17th says a lot, but I just figured I'd leave that little nugget with you considering they just left out of Baltimore with a sweep and now move on to St. Louis. Tampa and Texas, that's going to be one to keep an eye on, especially if the Orioles continue to stay hot, maybe by midweek or when we get together on Thursday. Could it be possible that the Orioles overtake Tampa by the time we get to Thursday? That remains to be seen. And then you have Minnesota at Seattle. Eh. Other series, San Diego at Toronto. So they go north of the border. Let's see if uh, San Diego could get themselves out of their funk. And with Toronto playing well, as I mentioned, Arizona at Atlanta. That's going to be an interesting test for the Diamondbacks. So you got some good series, some interesting ones as we get to the middle of this week and closer to the trade deadline, which will be on August the 1st. And that's what I have there with baseball as we move it along here. One other thing I might add, I was surprised that Major League Baseball has already released their 2024 schedule. Generally, they release it sometime, I want to say in the past few years, it's late August into September. But I cannot recall a time where they've released it right after the All-Star break to where you can even look ahead to see what your favorite team or who your favorite team is going to play next year, which I kind of liked. And a couple of things that jump out of the page, I know Dodgers Padres are going to kick off the year in Seoul, South Korea, which we've seen before in the past with the Japan series. I remember the Mets did that against the Cubs back in 2000. So as much as I knocked the NFL for going overseas in London and Germany and baseball with the London series in the middle of the year, but if you're going to start the year which would be a week before the season begins, which is March 28th. And I believe it's the earliest that baseball will start their season in the history of its sport. But for that to kick off the baseball season where it's on the other side of the pond, really beyond that. And you have two teams, Dodgers, Padres, of course, they're rivals. And for them to start the season a week before, I don't have a problem with that. And then you have the Mets. Not only do they start their year at home against the Brewers, but they also end their season in Milwaukee, which I found pretty interesting because generally you'll see that with division teams. So let's say if the Mets start off the season with the Phillies and end with the Phillies, you can understand why. But for them to start the year with an NL Central opponent and then end it with that same opponent, I found that pretty interesting. And not that I dissected or really rummaged through the entire schedule, but... For those who are interested, the baseball 
schedule is out for next year. So if you want to check for yourself to see where your team plays or who your team plays. And I know the Mets are playing the Yankees. Typical, they're two-game series in late June and I believe mid-July right after the All-Star break. So that's just a note there for the Mets fan or even the Yankee fan. And the Mets and Yankees do play next week in their Subway Series Tuesday and Wednesday. Just want to throw that out there. But now let me pivot and put on my shoulder pads and helmet because, yes, the NFL fan is about to rejoice. A week from tomorrow, and actually even later this week, you're going to have a lot of the rookies start trickling into training camps throughout the country. And I believe the Lions, they're going to start with everybody, veterans, rookies, etc. by the weekend. I believe it's the 22nd, if I'm not mistaken. So this coming Saturday. But this time, next Tuesday, everybody will be in camp. Everybody will be raring to go. Everybody will be pumped up and excited for the Hall of Fame game and the 2023 inductions to the Hall of Fame. Then the exhibition season will begin and I'll start to get sick and vomit from all the posts that I'll see on social media about football is back. Exhibition football has begun, preseason this, preseason that. And as I've said before, and I'll say it a thousand more times as long as I'm on this podcast, wake me up the second Sunday of September. Wake me up 5-1 to one before San Francisco at Pittsburgh there, Heinz Field, which will kick off the season. Other than that, these exhibition games, I could care less. Forget about them being meaningless and forget about, oh, let's see the rookies, the backups, who's going to make the team. Uh-uh. Just let me know what the 53 or 54-man roster is by the time we get to that Thursday before Labor Day and away we go. That's it. Case closed. We know there's three preseason games. We know that the starters will probably get a half in that second, or I would think maybe even the third preseason game, and so be it. And even in that setting, I will still not watch it. So I just thought to throw that out there just to throw some ice cold water on the football fan. But to get to more serious notes, you had a few things come out in the last few days regards to signings, a possible big signing, if not by 4 p.m. today, and a proclamation by one Tyree Kill, and I guess I'll start there. Tyree Kill on his podcast states, believe that when it comes to him trying to amass 2,000 receiving yards this upcoming year. And all I can say to him is, A, good luck, and B, it's going to come with a grain of salt. I hate to say it. Because as we know, two years ago, the NFL went to 17 games, and here's the example that I'm going to set. T.J. Watt, God love him, and everybody knows I'm a Steeler fan, who matched the record set by Michael Strahan, and we know that that was goofy, considering that Brett Favre went right, and he slid right at the feet of Michael Strahan, so that's where he got his record-breaking sack over Mark Asano, what was it, 2002, 2003? But T.J. Watt got the same amount of sacks in Game 17 against the Ravens, that final game of the season. So where, yes, he's in the record books when it's all said and done. But again, it's not going to come with an asterisk. But for the diehard or even the very good football fan, they're going to look at that and say, if somehow, some way, Tyreek Hill does get that 2,000-yard mark, where Calvin Johnson, who owns the record at 1,934, it's going to be done in 17 games. Unless he does it in 16, then it's a different story. So even if he surpasses Calvin Johnson, let's say he gets to 1,935, just one yard more, and then gets 2,000 in week 17, 
to me, it'll be in the record books as him breaking Calvin Johnson, of course, and it'll get 2,000. I get it, 17 games. But if he were to break that in 16, then I would really say that the record is legit. That's just me. Everybody knows I'm a hard marker when it comes to that. So I just use the TJ Watt sack record as a reference point. And if TJ Watt did that in 16 games, then listen, it's even more legit. But 17, eh, it comes with a little bit of an asterisk in my mind. But as we all know, at the end of the day, it still matches what Michael Strahan did a couple decades ago. But let's see what's going to happen. It's way too early to tell. And who knows what the health of Tua took over lower, which is going to be the bigger question down in Miami to whether or not he's going to be the guy over the course of each and every one of those 17 games to get him the ball and to achieve that lofty milestone. Then you had the Jets sign Quinn Williams, the number three pick overall out of Alabama a few years back. Four years, $96 million, $66 million guaranteed. I'm sure he's going to be a highlight and focal point of Hard Knocks, which as we talked about there on Thursday... Williams, who had a slow start to his career, but had a breakthrough season last year, and I'm sure the expectation level is even going to be through the roof, and then some, based on the year he had last year, and also getting the big money. So let's see how he responds to his big contract. And speaking of contracts, right across the other side of the locker room at MetLife, Saquon Barkley has a deadline. That by 4 p.m. today, and he's not going to sign the franchise offer, which I believe is somewhere in the vicinity of $10.5 million, which is a pittance when you think about it when it comes to not only just running backs, but just NFL money overall. But he wants an extension. And based on his recovery, he had the ACL a few years back, as we know. And last year, he had a big-time year. I believe he was fourth in the NFL in rushing. And he has stated that if... A deal isn't consummated between now and 4 o'clock. And as I look at my watch now, it's less than six hours. For him to then maybe even pull a Le'Veon Bell, boy, that is going to be a crapshoot and a dice roll because we've seen how that unfolded with Le'Veon Bell and how his career went south. And not to say that Barkley's career is going to forge that same path. But let's see. This game of chicken on whether or not the Maras and the GM, Joe Shine, is going to go ahead and put a contract in the face of a one Saquon Barkley to have him sign on the dotted line. Because if he's not going to be signed, sealed, and delivered by middle to late this afternoon, then chances are the Giants are going to have to be in desperation mode to look for a running back. And we get it, running backs aren't the same as it was many years ago. 100%. They're not the focal point of an offense the way they used to be. But he's still a big weapon and a big cog in that machine. And I would think that the giant brass, they're going to try to come across with an offer that is going to be favorable. But it's going to be whether or not Barkley is going to want to agree to that. Whether it's a handshake deal, whether it's a wink and a handshake, or whether he gets in his car and and just zooms over to the parking lot at MetLife before he gets to 4 o'clock in order for him to be a part of the Giant team when training camp breaks come next week. And that's the thing. He's probably going to hold out. He said week one is in jeopardy if he doesn't sign. Something to keep in mind, and that's something that I will monitor throughout the course of the day, and I would think by sometime this evening, even post on my social media feeds, in particular YouTube, at (laughs) JReels. So... 
definitely peep out for that if you haven't done so. So let's see what's going to happen here as football is on the horizon as we slowly but surely try to get out of this sports dead zone. And then lastly, a disturbing story from the NHL. And not much has gone on there in the National Hockey League. Same for the NBA. I know the Summer League concludes today. No Wembenyama. I talked about that last week. If you haven't listened to it, I'm sure you get a chuckle out of it. But for the Arizona Coyotes, who right now, they are Hockey Siberia. They're a team that, I don't want to say literally has no home, but they're playing on the campus of a college to where it only houses, what, 4,700 people? As we know, they had that situation in Glendale that was just a mess that no team or no building, not even the footprint center where the original Phoenix Coyotes, when they left Winnipeg to go down to the desert and they played in that arena, which is not meant for hockey. And they left there, I believe, a decade and a half ago to play in Glendale. And then Glendale said, nope, the lease is up. We don't want you here. Get out. Goodbye. And now that they're playing... I believe it was at Arizona State on their college campus. And I understand that it's charming and it's intimate, etc. And they did the right thing. They signed Alex Galchenyuk, former Canadian. He bounced around a bunch of different places. And he actually signed with the Coyotes just days before this incident that took place, I believe over the weekend, where he was arrested for a private property hit and run disorderly conduct, threatening a training officer with violence and also spewed racial slurs at this training officer. And as I mentioned, within hours, released them, said, good riddance, goodbye. We don't want any other baggage that this organization already has as it's one of the dregs of the league. And Galchenyuk, who knows? I don't know what happened here. It looked like, based on the report, that he hit the curb and then a sign somewhere in Scottsdale... And then when the officers were there to survey the scene and was about to be arrested, that's where hell broke loose to where the disorderly conduct came about as well as these racial slurs. Now, I don't know what the slurs were. That wasn't detailed in the police report. And as of right this moment, who knows if he was impaired by alcohol or drugs for that matter. That has not been released. But man, that is an ugly Incident to say the least. Thankfully, it wasn't a guy who was a big player in the sport. A guy that was or is a superstar player or a player of ilk that you could look at and say, geez, how could this come about? The National Hockey League, which is generally squeaky. And I understand you've had incidents over the years, etc. Patrick Kane, who was a free agent and it has to go through being a free agent for the first time and where he ends up with that bad hip that he got surgery on and at 34 years of age I digress for a second but we've had incidents over the years it's not as if the NHL has been scot-free but generally for a league that has for the most part not had a lot of players in trouble off the ice not had a lot of incidents not had situations or scenarios where you could really raise an eyebrow and say geez what the hell's going on with this league as we've seen with the NFL recently or even the NBA in years past but Galchenyuk, who knows if that was career suicide, but I just thought to bring that up only because that was very disturbing and you wonder whether or not he's going to latch on to another team. You would think, at least not for this upcoming year, but wow, just reading that story, that just, I don't want to say made my head spin, but it certainly made me think like, geez, what in the hell happened there for him to have a nuclear meltdown and for him to just really throw his career into a tizzy. So 
NHL quiet overall. Who knows? I'm sure a schedule is going to come out soon. Same for the NBA for that matter, as both of those sports have relatively been quiet and peaceful on that front. And with that being said, people, that is it. Another episode just about in the books, as always. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for carving out your precious time and your precious day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, one more time. I can't stress it enough. Please, subscribe, rate, review, throw me a few stars, write a review. That's just going to increase the visibility. As I mentioned at the very top, you know the deal. So please do so as I would gratefully and thankfully appreciate it. And if you want to follow me, please do so. Subscribe on YouTube, at J Reels, my social media platforms, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. If you want to hit me up with a question, comment, suggestion, DM me in those aforementioned or at those aforementioned social media platforms or the old-fashioned way by email, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals, as you well know, because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. This is what I love to do. Talk sports, analyze it, critique it, etc. Because where else are you going to get all these topics? And I know sports have been relatively slow, but you know when it's on and popping, I'm going to dissect it all. And yes, I just thought about this. I didn't get to Lionel Messi. So here I am jumping the gun before I bid adieu. But real quick on Lionel Messi, because I'll talk more about this on Thursday because he's going to make his debut over the weekend, or I believe on Friday for that matter. But Messi Mania coming to Miami. Is it going to be boom or bust? I think it's going to be boom right off the bat. He's already been shopping in the Miami area, going into local supermarkets. So could you imagine for Lionel Messi to be a part of the community in that regard? Kudos to him. I believe he does have a place in Miami or has had a place in Miami. But for Messi to see if he can make his imprint a la Pele as he did in the 70s here locally with the New York Cosmos or the North American Soccer League. One more time, I'll get into more of that there on Thursday's podcast as we'll just be a day away from his debut, which I'm sure is going to be well ballyhooed, especially amongst the soccer fan for Inter-Miami there down in South Florida. So I'll be sure to delve into that a little bit further as I roll up my sleeves to talk a little soccer at that time. But that just goes to show you people. I talk about anything and everything and I do it in roughly an hour, over an hour, or in this case, under an hour. And who else is going to deliver that fire, passion, fury, energy to share my thoughts, opinions, feelings, analysis, critique, praise on anything and everything? That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to Southeast to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>